Please be seated. Open up your Bible to Joshua. I'm really grateful to Les Tolan and uh, Jerry Del Sol for covering for me the last couple of Sundays uh, while, while I was gone. Uh, we're all the way into Joshua chapter 20. Those guys had to do all the hard passages while I was gone. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> There's this uh, uh, popular pastor, megachurch pastor, that, that I, I really enjoy. Like, I, I like the guy. He has a pleasant southern accent. Uh, he's got a fam- famous dad named Charles. Uh, he's got the same first name as me, so he's got that going for him. Uh, he's got good Bible study curriculum that I've used in the past and, and that I enjoy. The only thing is that he's constantly saying really, really dumb things. Uh, things that he, like, keep getting him in trouble. Uh, and part of the reason is because to, to a, a great extent, uh, what he's trying to do is help those who are struggling with Christianity or, or who have like uh, uh, hang-ups about certain... He's trying to help like diffuse some of those issues that unbelievers have with certain parts of the Bible or the church or Christianity. But in doing so, he kind of undermines... Scripture and the church in some unfortunate ways. A few years ago, he said that uh, Christianity doesn't really hinge on the virgin birth of Jesus. Now he was just trying to like help diffuse the whole like people who who have a problem with that like that one thing prevents them from moving any further. He was just trying to say, hey, listen, don't worry about that. Why don't you look at everything else that Jesus said and did and take that into consideration? And, you know, I mean, I guess if we were honest, yeah, it's really the, the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that is kind of the centerpiece of Christianity. But the virgin birth is kind of theologically important, right? I mean, you don't want to undermine that. Ah. He, he then, he said uh, a few years ago that if, if you go to a small church, you're selfish. Like, if you just like a church of about 200 people, then that's, that's not good. Uh, that it's, that it's bad for your kids if you go to a church that's, that's a small church. You need to find yourself a big old church, he said. Uh, okay, but, but Andy, uh, like 95% of churches in the United States are small churches. They aren't big old mega churches like yours. And, and that's kind of not a cool thing to say. And, uh, for this one, he didn't even try and like explain it or defend it. He just came out a week later and said, Oh, that was dumb. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. It was wrong. I apologize. Totally recanted on that one. Uh, uh, not too long ago, he said he doesn't like to tell people because the Bible says so. Like he doesn't like to say that. Uh, Okay, uh, again, like a statement like that just kind of casts some doubt on the infallibility of Scripture. And again, he's just trying to like diffuse skeptics' objections to Christianity uh, that they have based on some of the harder passages of Scripture. And uh, you know, I kind of get where his heart's at, but still, I, kind of a problematic thing to say. Uh, just just recently, just a couple of months ago, he got into more hot water uh, for, for saying this, and I'm going to quote it. Uh, he said, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. 
No, I mean, come on, what a crazy thing to say. Uh, super unbiblical, not, not true, just plain wrong. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures, and we, and we should too. No, they didn't. And, and no, we shouldn't. Uh, now what he meant, again, just to be, just to be fair, what he meant was Peter, James, and Paul shifted away from the old covenant era to the new covenant era of grace. He was preaching from Acts 15, uh, which deals with the question of whether or not you needed to keep all of the Jewish laws in order to be a good Christian. Like, again, I kind of understand where he's coming from, but the way it came out is like we need to ditch the Old Testament and just be New Testament people. Like the Old Testament isn't relevant to us anymore. Uh, as if the Old Testament isn't theologically important, but we can't even really understand New Testament theology, New Covenant theology, without first understanding the Old Testament, Old Covenant. On the, on the very first Easter morning, there were some disciples of Jesus, uh, who were walking from Jerusalem to a nearby town of Emmaus, right? And while they were walking, they had talked about everything that had happened over the last couple of days. And while they were walking and talking, Jesus, risen Lord, actually shows up and walks alongside them. So the Bible says that they were prevented from recognizing Him. They didn't, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus walks up and asks them, hey guys, what you talking about? That's a paraphrase. And they were stunned. They're like, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Are you the only one in this whole area that hasn't heard about all of these things that have been happening? Uh, Jesus says, uh, what things? <laughs> so in Luke 24, they, they said to them, the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find His body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but they did not see Him. And I'm sure the way that they recounted this story to Jesus was, was super animated, right? There's, there's this Jesus, this prophet, this guy who is mighty, and what he said and what he did was amazing, clearly from God. I'm sure you've heard the name. Our, our leaders, our chief priests hated him and were jealous of him and, arrested him and handed him over to be killed and he was crucified and it's nothing makes sense because we thought he was going to be the messiah we thought he was going to be the one to redeem us that was three days ago 
But there's more. Some of the women went to the tomb to take care of the body like you're supposed to do. When they got there, he wasn't there. The tomb was empty. And, and they saw these angels that said that he's actually alive. Some of the other disciples ran to the tomb and saw it just like they said. He's not there. We don't know where his body is. That just happened. That was like today. That was this morning. That's what we're talking about. We're trying to figure this out. What does it all mean? We don't understand. Was he really sent by God? How could he have been killed? Where is he now? Where is the body? Could he really be alive? What does this mean? Jesus lets the guy uh, explain. And then Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scripture. On the very same day that Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus takes some time to teach about what it all meant. Starting in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, all the way through the prophets, he shows how those all are pointing to him, how all of that is about him. That the Old Testament is filled with all of these object lessons and all of these illustrations and all of these allusions to Jesus and what he was going to do. There's all of these, these symbolic things that God did back then to point to what God was going to do now through Jesus. And far from unhitching the Old Testament from the New Testament, Jesus illuminates it. And I got to think that one of the places that Jesus spent at least a little bit of time as they walked to Emmaus was was right here in the book of Joshua. I mean, Joshua is the same name as Jesus, right? They both mean the same thing. The Lord is salvation. In chapter 5, Joshua comes face to face with this messenger of God, this, this uh, one who uh, identifies himself as the, as the leader of the Lord's army. And he tells Joshua to remove his sandals because the place they're standing is holy. Clearly, this is more than just an angel. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. There, there's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. And I think that, that the passage that we've come to next here in Joshua chapter 20 is another one of those sections that's ultimately about Jesus. And God, God has this really cool way. I don't know if you've noticed it. He has this really cool way of solving immediate problems in, in the Old Testament in a way that points ahead to what He's going to do in the future. Because God's kind of a planner that way. Because He's consistent. Because the Lord is our salvation yesterday and today and forever. Much of what, much of what Joshua does when they enter into the promised land is simply to follow the instructions that Moses gave him, right? 
And they conquer the cities. They go to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and do the blessing and cursing ceremony thing. Uh, they divide up the land. We talked about that uh, last week. And then Moses instructs Joshua to establish in the land on both sides of the Jordan cities of refuge. Uh, look at Joshua chapter 20. Starting in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who was the high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they set apart uh, Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country, Naphtali uh, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, uh, and Kariath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness, on the plain from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth and Gilead, uh, the tribe of Gad and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. And whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation." Man, what, what an interesting section of Scripture there, right? I mean, just fascinating. These cities were established solely as a way of dealing with someone who accidentally, unintentionally kills someone else. Which means these must have been just cities full of the clumsiest people in the whole country. I don't know. Uh, the whole purpose of these six cities is grounded in the fact that God highly values human life. These these cities highlight God's value of human life in in a couple of ways. Right, It recognized that, that the person who's been killed deserves a hearing. Was it murder? Was it it really just an accident? Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? They deserve a hearing. They deserve some kind of, uh, of justice. And God has established all the way back in Genesis 9 that willful, vengeful murder was a serious crime because we are created in God's image. And, and if you destroy that, it comes with a serious penalty. So the system of justice that existed at this time was that if, if one of your family members was killed, that means you or another close family member would have to take on this responsibility of being like the judge, jury, executioner. You would take on the role of avenger of blood, which sounds really serious. Uh, 
You would have to go and avenge the death of your family member. That was part of the justice system that God established. But what, what if it was an accident? And the example that the Bible gives uh, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19 is, is of, of uh, two guys chopping wood out in the forest, right? And, and one guy swings his axe and the, the axe head flies off and hits the other guy in the head. And uh, I didn't mean to do that. Like, total accident. Now, now what? What do we do? What happens in that case? And these cities of refuge were for those situations. The person that accidentally killed his buddy would run as fast as he could to this city of refuge that was nearby. And he would seek asylum there. Now God values the life that was lost, but God also values the life of the person who totally didn't mean to hurt anybody. God doesn't want the avenger of blood to kill them without some sort of hearing. And God also values the, the life of the person that has to take on that role of, of an avenger. Uh, because think about it, if you, if you were to, like in your anger and in your frustration, kill somebody who doesn't deserve to die, that would be a horrible weight to live with. So these cities, they help protect the person who was killed and the one who accidentally killed them and the one who was the avenger. Amazing how just this one act, God shows how much He values human life. These cities also highlight the divine justice of God. God is actively concerned with fairness and with protecting people. And God doesn't play favorites, right? I mean, He's impartial. These cities were for not just the Israelites, but for anybody, for, for anyone. Foreigners and anybody living in the country that needed protection. And God wanted to make sure that the punishment would fit the crime. Because there's a big difference between an accident and a willful act of premeditated murder. And, and God wanted to make sure that there was no angry vengeance that would take place. In Exodus 21, it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's a passage that I think we often misunderstand. Uh, when I was processing through this with, uh, with Pastor Chris, and we're working through it, he said he went into this I don't know where he was, uh, some hippie store, and they had uh, a sign-up that had a quote from Gandhi, uh, attributed to Gandhi, that said, an eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind, right? So I, I looked that up and found out that it actually wasn't something that Gandhi said. It's not a Gandhi quote. It's a Ben Kingsley quote from the Gandhi movie, which I think is hilarious. And it totally misses the point of the scripture. Like it doesn't get, it doesn't understand what the 